So this is going to be a fascinating episode because I talk a lot to leaders about diversity, but diversity of thought. So for one client over the last few weeks, I've had the privilege and the pleasure of working in Hong Kong, in New York, and in Zurich. And one of the beauties of that was the ability to start to work with diverse people across cultures, across demographics, across ethnicity. And it really kind of highlighted to me the benefits and the beauty really of having people who think very, very differently because of their backgrounds. And so I wanted to have a conversation with my guest this week about diversity and leadership. But also importantly, let's start to link that now to the future of diversity in technology because we know, don't we, that generative AI is here to stay. It's a point in time. Everything may change. People are talking about existential threats. Well, is diversity in tech a threat or it is an opportunity? And actually, when we think about it, we as human beings have got a lot of accountability to take on in relation to what we actually put in to the machine in relation to what comes out the other side. This is going to be a fascinating episode. And come back to me and join me with Jason Nash just after this break. Hi, I'm Adam Pacifico and welcome to The Leadership Enigma, a world-ranked award-winning podcast that's insatiably curious as regards what leaders do, how they do it, and importantly, why. We'll delve into the human doing, but even deeper into the human being and the power of human-centered leadership to drive sustainable change. So whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts and disruptors, as together we will discover that success leaves clues. Jason, well, that was my attempt at a, as a pretty good intro, I hope, about this fascinating subject, but welcome to the Leadership Enigma. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, enjoying it. And we were just commenting, weren't we? I keep saying that. It's a great studio, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, very, very good. As long as it's making me look good, then it, I, I'm It good is making you look good, can I say? So uh, no, thanks for taking the time to come in. This is always my, my, my favorite to have the face-to-face conversation. And I'm really grateful to Mitchell Feldman, who put us in touch. And obviously, Mitchell was X-ray glass and... Uh, he's already done an episode and he's coming back into the studio, I think, in a couple of months. But Jason, tell us a little bit about your background uh, and why we're talking today about diversity, leadership and technology. Yeah, so um, I guess I have a pretty diverse background on multiple levels. Yep. Um, I've worked in quite a number of industries. So um, I've worked, if I kind of work backwards in yep. my career, been doing quite a bit of sort of independent consulting on the product management side and the AI side recently. But prior to that was at Travelport for 10 years, uh, which is obviously a travel business um, where I had various roles in product management and also uh, ran global marketing there for a while. Yes. Prior to that was at Microsoft for five years, uh, where I was product manager for CRM. So again, very techy, yep. software as a service, that kind of area. Uh, prior to that, was at Sony Business Europe for a while, working on ISO 9000 document management stuff. Thank you for helping me on that. <laughs> <laughs> and also some QS 9000 stuff in the automotive space when I was working prior to Sony at Poway, which was my two years living in Indianapolis. Right. Uh, an interesting location with uh, a lot of a lot of great cultural aspects to it that uh, gave me some really good insights in my life there. Uh, and prior to that, various smaller roles, uh, having been at university in London, at King's College, doing a food biochemistry and management degree, oh, I which I walked away from and did absolutely nothing with. I'm like always many fascinated people. that food biochemistry degree. And then you went into really 
As into, you say, SaaS in, platforms. Yeah, into, ultimately <clears throat> into sort of support desk initially and then into product marketing and, and then into pure product management. Was this all by chance? Um, you know what? Headhunters have pulled me pretty much from <laughs> one role to another. And actually, it's only been the last sort of probably 12 months in my career where I felt like I've been driving it myself more through actually some of my own choices. Right, gotcha. And tell me a little bit about you and your background, because again, we're going to, we're going to touch on the inclusivity piece. We're going to touch yeah. on neurodiversity, and I know that's close to our, our collective hearts on that front. And, and I'm really grateful for you as well, because we can't separate the human doing from the human being. So that's really the CV, but also it's who's Jason Nash? Yeah. I, I like that human doing, human being. I think it's a really great analogy. I mean, Thank you. in my own case, um, you know, I'm dyslexic uh, and I'm proud dyslexic as well. I actually think it really gives me the ability to see the world in a slightly different light. I tend to be the person in the room that's thinking to me what is the obvious thing. Yep. And I'm not afraid to generally say that uh, and to challenge the status quo. And I think in my career, what that's allowed me to do is look at traditional business models and see where the new opportunity is, either through partnering or through bringing the right sort of um, new thinking to that to be able to say, OK, well, you know, do we want another task list yep. in our product? And if so, why are they going to use ours rather than somebody else's? Right. So many products we're seeing it now. It's becoming bloatware. And um, this is going to become a bigger and bigger issue okay. because with generative AI making code higher quality, faster delivery, we're going to see more and more features being added to products. And what that will do is you'll end right. up with bloatware, where products have got so many features in there. It's impossible to know. You don't know, you know, <laughs> why am I using this product rather the than the other one? It would be like this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think what this allows us to do and what it means is we have to be more disciplined with the product decisions and making very deliberate decisions about what we are going to add and what we're not going to add. And that really comes down to making sure you've got the right people in yes. those roles. And so, you know, my dyslexic brain has allowed me to do that. In my personal life... Can my, I just... I'm just going to ask one yeah, question there. Because cause I, I, I take this in stages because my curious mind is is working feverishly. You said you were very proud of your dyslexia and yeah. you, you were able to leverage it. But how old were you when you started to think that? Because I meet so many youngsters and teenagers who are worried, nervous, or even hide. Yeah, these diagnoses. So when did you in your life think, no, hang on, this is this is a real superpower. So I'll, I'll give you a bit of background. So I was originally diagnosed in primary school. Oh, early. But for some reason, my notes got lost and I got re-diagnosed in my fourth year at secondary school. Gotcha. And at that point, it was almost too late to do anything about it. Um, and I got an, uh, a grant from uh, the uh, college, uh, the, the council, and they gave me uh, a, a grant for a computer. And I had a, um, a 386DX PC, if you remember that, oh, with no. Windows 3.1 and DOS 5.0 on it. And that was the device that really got me into computers in okay. a really big way. I did right. have a Sinclair Spectrum as well and all of that the BBC stuff. BBC Micro, uh, the VIC-20. We had access to that and a Sinclair, uh, yeah, all the, all the rest of it. But ultimately, that was what got me into computers. And that's really been my, my entire career. And I've okay. seen technology as this massive enabler in my personal life that's allowed me to get over that. Because I was the stupid kid at school, right? And I worked like one to keep up. And luckily, I, I did science and I found that I had a real 
skill for science, particularly 3D visualization of, right. of models. I was really good at organic chemistry. But, but this was your dyslexia masking yes. uh, what people thought what you were capable of, right? Completely. And, and what that meant is that even today I have a bit of a sort of uh, high work ethic. You know, I, I know I've got a work problem in that I, I right. find work to do even when I haven't got work to do because... Oh, we'll go on to that. <laughs> when you were the stupid kid, you had to work extra hard to keep up. But the thing is, you weren't the stupid kid. No, but you get... It's the perception and the exactly. label. Exactly. Which you is get, so damaging. It is. It really is. And, and that, you know, I think that has meant that today, you know, Elon Musk talks about his work ethic, yeah. and I'm not even going to propose I'm anywhere near as mental as he is, right? Um, but I do have really ridiculous work ethic, and I put in really, really ridiculous hours sometimes because of that imposter. Compensating? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, right. because I think, you know, for a long time when you were told you were stupid, that gets ingrained in your head, and then you actually think to yourself, okay, I've got to, got to overwork here to make sure that I'm achieving. So that's interesting where the connection with computers and IT came in. But again, help me, at what age did you think, I'm not stupid, which clearly you're not, but actually, no, hang on, I can turn dyslexia into a superpower. Yeah. How old do you think you were where you started to really leverage and truly believe that? So I think I really, really believed it at two points in my life. One, when I was finishing university. Okay. And, you know, I got into King's College in London, which was a pretty prestigious university. And I was using my computer all of that time. Right. Um, to, to word process and you know I had the ability to be able to word process some of my things and you know, I was using WinWord 2.0 and some of this technology that at the time was groundbreaking um, but that was what allowed me to kind of feel like I was overcoming it right the other thing was that I always was quite a good uh, verbal communicator and I've had the good fortune in my career of for instance presenting on stage with Bill Gates to Have 500 you? members of the IOD. Well, there you go. That's an interesting a, fact. A long know. time ago. Um, Let's but, dig out that photo, James. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That That's the kind of um, thing I have, you know, great, great ability to tell good stories and, right. and communicate and think quickly on my feet. I also think that came down to playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid, which oh, I nice. actually recommend... For people that want to be able to think on their feet and be really creative, it is a great thing to get your kids to do. I don't know do. whether our teenagers now won't even know what Dungeons and Dragons you know is if it's, it's not. had a bit of a comeback it, is it in a recent years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's also some interesting research that shows that leadership teams that actually are able to um, work better if they've actually uh, role-played in these kind of scenarios Maybe as well. we'll have to bring Dungeons and Dragons to leadership development. <laughs> so so that's the, the, the neurodiversity piece as yes. well. But you, you were also going to, um, forgive me, I interrupted because I, I wanted to, to hear that, but also you're going to tell me some other details about, you know, you, who is Jason Nash? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I'm also a gay man. Um, I've been uh, very sort of... Um, out about myself but I'm not somebody that kind of broadcasts it but I think it's yeah. something to not hide uh, mm -hmm. in one's life um, my partner uh, is a very talented musician and what, uh, what does he play he plays piano. Oh, okay. Uh, was at the Guildhall and did opera and piano. Okay, this isn't just playing the piano, and Jason, is it? This is a pretty good level of... He's a he's a very talented musician. Right. And um, so he does music lessons, and uh, but he also has uh, Asperger's syndrome. Right. So his ability to sit and play the same piece of music for 12 hours 
uh, over and over again yeah. uh, is probably related to some of that neurodiversity that he has. And we know that companies like Microsoft, my old employer, has yeah. actually you know, deliberately sought out those kind of people because they are the 10x developers in some cases that are truly the, the productivity enhancers in organizations because they have that focus that allows them to just keep going. Okay. So there, there are many things here, and I, I want to I break them down if I may, Jason, because I think then they lead neatly into the inclusivity and diversity in technology. So we're, we're in some ways we're fusing this. So uh, as you said, uh, as a gay man, you know, Tell me a little bit about your feeling about the role of diverse leadership in any organization, not just in relation to one specific group, but that very broad church of diversity where in many ways the organization is proactively seeking out difference and diversity of thought. Just tell me a little about your experience as a senior leader in many businesses and, and yeah. what you see, what you feel. Yes, yeah, so I think... Um we all talk about diversity, right, as if it's this thing that we should want it. It trips off the tongue, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. You know, but, but why do we want diversity, right? That, That's a good it, question. It's, it's the, the outcome over the output idea, right? Okay. What is the outcome that we're looking for by having diverse thinking in an organization? Yep. And the outcome we're looking for is the checks and balances on the culture to make sure that we are forcing the organization to not be myopic. We want the business to actually be thinking about all the different opportunities. How do we make the products as broad and um, uh, capable by actually bringing all of these ideas in? How do we challenge the status quo? How do we challenge the cultural biases to make sure that actually we are thinking about all of the different aspects that can make for a richer, richer culture, richer product, you know, richer working environment that actually means that we get the best out of everybody that's in that environment because we're not actually forcing it into this kind of constrained position where, you know, we know that um, in this world there's a lot of black and white, right? And we're seeing... What's easier for people to understand? It's well, either this or it's this? Is it this or this? Exactly. And it never is. But <laughs> actually, the gray space, right, is where the best decisions compromise is at the heart of good politics. It's at the heart of actually good product design, in my opinion, as right. well. Um, constraints theory and making sure you understand that you have to do something within a budget. You have to do something within an envelope of development hours that you have. Yes. These are things that are really important to get our heads around. And I think in this new world of generative AI that we're heading into... We're going to keep coming back to that, aren't yeah, we? Th this is going to be an even more important thing. Okay. Uh, I recently read an article in the Wall Street Journal where certain CTOs are getting concerned about the fact that the code bases that they're managing are going to become a lot bigger. Because actually, generative AI can create lots of code yep. at high quality, supporting the developers, which means, as I talked about this a little bit earlier, but this idea of feature creep, where products just become bigger and bigger and more bloated, is going to actually become a real significant issue, just as like... Won't be able to understand them. Well, it, it comes back down to really great user experience and customer experience in general. But it's, it's the same thing with blog articles right now if we want to do a blog article we can go to chat gtp we can put in our preferred prompt to make sure we get the right prompt 
We then put that prompt in to get the answer we want. Yep. And we get a pretty decent blog yeah, article. I've tried it. It's quite amazing. We can edit it down. But actually, what does this mean? We're going to have more and more output, more and more blog articles. Now, if the outcome is to get people to read that and to be enriched by that stuff, we need to be very careful because we could all be busy fools on our hamster wheel running around creating more and more output. But that is not having the desired outcome that we really need to make you know, happen in the organisation. I like that, Jason, because it's again, it's the focus is on the user, the end customer, the consumer. Yes, because you're right. I almost think about like walking um, through a, a supermarket, and if I've got two or three choices of a certain product, it's easy. If I've got thirty three choices, it's almost I have no idea, and I might end up walking away. It's just it's too much. I've got no idea so how to make a choice. You make a really good point there, and I've talked about this, and it's one of the cognitive biases that we need to think about as product designers and and, and leaders in general. And that is, we've all been into um, a foreign country, and you you go to buy a detergent, right? And suddenly all the brands are different, or toothpaste, right? The brands are all different, and you're cognitive overload you are suddenly paralyzed by the fact that you do not know which of these numerous choices exactly yeah and so you know i think that this is one of the things that apple does so very well as a business right they distill the products down to the very root of what they are there to do and they take away a lot of the clutter yes and we know that that has served them very very well and i think that um that discipline uh, is really comes down to really understanding, you know, what business are you in? What, what, what's the job to be done? Yes. And getting all of those things to be really clear makes a huge impact on uh, the, the investment and value that businesses then uh, deliver for their customers. Jason, I've got to ask this question only because it was on my mind uh, when I was over in Zurich, and that's the latest product from Apple. What do you think, timing-wise, price point-wise? Is this a, a, a real experiment for so, them that could go... One of two ways. I am an Apple fanboy. I, I am from, too. From the beginning, like I, I got the first iPhone. I bought it when I was in America. I was working at Microsoft at the time. It was politically incorrect. I used to take my telephone calls in the toilet occasionally because I didn't want to bring my iPhone out. So, um, and I had one of the grey uh, uh, MacBooks with the 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 ball trackpad in it. Um, right. So I've I've been a true Apple fanboy for a while. I think it's. I think it's a pretty remarkable product uh, from what I can see. Pricey. It is pricey, but I think, let's be honest, um, we're all but used beautiful. to paying £1,500 for a smartphone if we buy that from Apple on a regular basis, yeah. right? Um, so I think that they are masters at that end of the market. And I think we know as well that a lot of high net worth individuals tend to buy more Apple products. Yeah. So if anybody's going to afford that price point, it's going to be the Apple customer base. Yeah. Um, but, but it's I more th- it's more metaverse focused almost than generative AI, isn't it? So sometimes I wonder whether generative AI has pushed the metaverse into the into the shadows. Yeah. I mean, I think the Apple keynote had very little. There were a few touches of generative AI that they talked about. Yeah. Uh, you know, they talked about a couple of transformer models and things that they they got into the new uh, speech recognition. But I think, um, yeah, I, I think time will tell. I think it will it will tell. I had I, to ask. <laughs> I'm pretty pretty convinced that it will turn into a successful product line for them. But we'll we'll see. Okay. So in relation to, you know, your explanation of the the role of uh, inclusivity within leadership is yes. it's about challenging the status quo, not having the cookie cutter, avoiding the echo chamber, 
but being able to embrace that diversity of thought because we're in a rapidly changing world and what people want and need and uh, and consume is rapidly changing so in, in many ways is this about an organization be able to stay relevant Absolutely. It's that it's that ability to be able to react rapidly to the changing environment that we all find ourselves in. Right. Gotcha. So as a person that's managed product management teams, and I'll use this as an example, there are two schools of thought for product leaders. You get the people that are looking for product managers that come from the industry that the product that they're building sits in. They've got that expertise. Yeah, we want the experts. Right. Or you get the people which is more my mindset, which is actually I don't want product experts that come from the industry. I want people that are actually going to spend 20% of their time talking to customers. And I want them to bring new industry ideas to actually enrich this product. So that, um, you know, if you've come from the medical environment, you only know the medical way of thinking. Which means you're constrained by all of the biases even if you don't think you are the curse of knowledge that you cannot unlearn of what you know and that means that when you come in you're already constraining yourself by those ways of thinking whereas if you've come from a different industry let's say you were in automotive and you went into medical which some people might say i never want a product person that came from automotive but actually they may have some supply chain management thinking about how the tier one to four automotive supply chain works, which could be applied into the medical space. Which challenges the status quo. Which allows for these new ideas. And that's where this disruptive innovation that so many businesses would like to apply come from. It's through this diverse set of thinking where all these new ideas come together which challenge the, the convention. So Jason, in your career, I wonder, have you ever heard the phrase, listen Jason, we've always done it like this absolutely (laughs) absolutely we've always done it this way yes and that for me is like the red uh, is that the death knell (laughs) well no that's that's the the red flag to the bull for me because that's then the opportunity to really challenge people's thinking and say well just because we've always done it that way you know that's surely uh, the reason why we need to think about this in a different way i mean if there's one thing that is happening faster and faster in business and uh chat gtp was the classic, I mean, I've got those letters the wrong way around with my dyslexia, if I have, I apologize. Um, that's the classic yep. thing, right? That product went from nothing to 100 million users in less time than any other product in history. We're only seeing these curves get faster and faster. Right. Uh, and so, you know, businesses can't hang around on this stuff. They've got to have... Time stands yeah, still for no one. They've got to get their, their acts together. And, you know, uh, it's funny, I... I've been around for a couple of these transformations. I was at the beginning when the internet was first coming out and email servers were about, right? A lot has changed a in our lifetime, right? in those times, right? Um, I was here for mobile. I was here for cloud. All of those were big. They were just small in comparison to what the yeah. AI revolution that we're about to go through is going to be. And I'm super excited to be you know, at this point where we're going to see it really have impact. And for people with dyslexia... This is such an enabling technology. Oh, that's interesting. It yeah. really, you know, I, I've, I've been engaging with it a lot. I've been doing some prompt engineering and I've had some time between contracts where I've been actually using various tools like Langchang and Pinecone, which is a vector database. And I, I'm not a I'm developer. Gonna, I'm, I'm going to nod at you knowingly now. Jason. I'm not a developer, but I, <laughs> I can play around with code and stuff. And um, and I've been you know I've been building some interesting tools with it. It's very very powerful. Okay, let me ask you this: as a member of the LGBTQ community, are organisations doing enough? 
I mean, I I think there is um, Tim Cook is obviously the, the 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 figurehead person out there that we we know. Um, I think it's still fairly uncommon to be aware of who in our fortune you know 5000 companies FTSE 250 whatever yep. who are um who are openly gay i don't feel that people should be forced to actually disclose it because what they get up to in their own lives is their own business so that's a personal choice isn't yeah. it and it's different isn't it from whether you know, you know from an ethnicity perspective it's something that you choose you, to reveal exactly or not. You, you can either choose or not choose yeah. to do that right you, you there's some things you can't hide correct um but i i think that um I think there's still a, a certain amount of stigma around that, and people will only overcome the stigma if um, you know people are open and transparent about those things, and and use it as uh, a benefit. You know, I genuinely believe that my dyslexic gay mind allows me to see the world in a way that you know, other people would not see. I see, I love um, the way you describe it in that way, because as you say, it's, it's, and I hope there are youngsters listening to this, you know, young leaders and who, who want to go on and will do great things that they start to understand that if they are, if they are different, that's okay. Yes, absolutely. And actually em- embrace that. Well, it's a super, you, you use the term superpower. I met my old boss from Microsoft a couple of weeks back. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember his second name, Gary, but he went on to be the CEO for Zero, right? Um, in the UK, and um, we'll get him on as a guest. Yeah, next. he he's a really great guy. You, you'd enjoy him. And um, we were we were just chatting, and he said, you know, Jason, your superpower has always been the ability to tell a good story, to get people excited and enthusiastic about, yeah. you know, the transformation that you're trying to take people on. Yes, and um, and I believe that you know we've all got that secret thing that we're really good at and it's about making sure you're in an environment and with the right team where those things are going to be able to be leveraged uh, rather than suppressed at the end of the day you know and and people should always make sure they're in an environment where they feel they're doing their best work and and that's why I was really keen for us to have this conversation because you were very keen to talk about who you are the human being how that's led into the human doing but now let's join I think this conversation with a conversation that, that is happening everywhere and that is tech that tech is not new in fact ai is decades old we've Indeed. been using ai in some way shape or form for a long time even without realizing it but now as soon as chat gpt put this out into the open market which perhaps was a risk or a gamble in to unleash the beast on the world i i don't know but let's have a talk about what should leaders be mindful of now in relation to inclusivity and diversity in technology because let's be honest it's the humans who are starting this and then it might be ai that takes it forward i don't know where this goes but tell us about some of the things that you're seeing and some of the lessons that you would love to share with uh, organizations about inclusivity and diversity in technology to make sure it's not bias in bias out yeah so i'm not through mischief either i don't mean that we all carry biases and that's that's who we are yeah, and you know we're we're all biased um, to some degree, and and we all have to I think be challenged on on not being in an echo chamber that just reinforces our own uh, neuroses and our own biases, right? I mean, I yeah, we recruit I think, in our own image. Yes, exactly, um, and I think that um, these new large language models are going to be trained, are being trained on huge amounts of data. Yeah. 
Uh, and ultimately, it, we need to make sure that that data is uh, sufficiently diverse that allows for different viewpoints to be um, built into the models so that we're not forcing um, sort of a uh, straight white heterosexual male bias into the entire view. A cookie cutter um, view. Yeah, exactly. It, it's back to the reasons why diversity is important. It's important that the data set that we train on is is therefore important as well. And I think the recent um, Google announcements where, you know, some of their models had actually were able to uh, use languages that they hadn't trained the model on very much yeah. because um, some of the new, um, what the heck, what's the term I'm looking for? And this is where I can't help you, Jason. So there, there are these new uh, behaviors that some of the models have, have sort of spontaneously been able to uh, work on. This is the generative the, part, right? The generative part, yeah. But, but there's a specific word that they've been using for okay. these new capabilities that the models are capable of. And it, it appears that the more data that they're trained on, the more of these certain word um, uh, uh, capabilities are, are suddenly uh, being discovered. Right. And so I think that, again, the, the more diverse the content, uh, we're going to see more of this capability, which will make these models even, even, even brighter. I mean, I, I look at this a little bit like, if you look back in history at Renaissance period, some of the greatest um, discoveries were made when we brought science and art you look at uh, Leonardo da Vinci, for example, he brought together all of these great ideas and Renaissance man stroke person in today's world um, was this sort of melting pot of new ideas. I genuinely believe that these uh, large language models are going to generate a new Renaissance by having all of this information fused within them. And it comes down to us as leaders to find how we're gonna apply this technology but also using the right prompts to uncover these nuggets that are probably already lying in these models. Um, but it's about asking the right questions. You know, okay. I, I see a lot of people using the models for what feels like very sort of trivial types of questions. I think people are learning themselves how yeah. to get the best out of I think that's fair. The, the, the technology. Listen, I've seen some episodes on other podcasts and read Armageddon-like uh, interviews mm -hmm. in relation to existential threat and I, I'm not suggesting that isn't something that one you know has to be wary of and, and we learned out don't we that the government here is looking at looking trying to put some regulation in although how regulation keeps up with the development of technology is nigh on impossible what is your feeling with this we, we're at a point in time but a point of great opportunity a point of great threat or a little bit of both I mean I I think as in all things in life it's going to be a little bit of both but I think let's not forget that it's the human being yes. that is going to um, use these things for wrong, uh, to, if indeed to that's, create human doing or AI doing uh, yeah, capabilities. Exa exactly. You know, if we want to ask, you know, how to create a, a, a weapon for, you know, bio destruction, um, and it's going to give us the answers for that thing, well, we ask the question, right? Um, so it, it really comes down to, I think, w us as human beings rising to the challenge and making sure that we're using these, these tools in a positive light and the right safeguards are put in place to try and make sure that we are avoiding the, the misuse of them. But let's not f forget, you know, 
you can go and buy a, a, a crisp machine for doing genetic programming of things pretty easily today. Yeah. You know, these devices were hundreds of thousands of pounds. And as you know, now you can pick them up for a few thousand. Um, the ability for people to be empowered to do all sorts of things. I mean, take this, for example, right? We're in a studio here communicating with as many people want to hear this podcast. Um, as individuals, we have the power that we never had 10 years ago because you would have needed to be the BBC or whatever, right? Yeah. So the, this sort of constant improvement of technology is allowing more and more people to have access to do more and more in their lives. Now, I was with working with Jonathan Reichenthal, who's been a guest on the show. I said to you, he's, the, he's a great educator and keynote, former chief information officer for the city of Palo Alto. So hello to Jonathan. I spoke to him yesterday. But um, he said something that was, that was fascinating to me and obvious. But he said, actually, for many decades ago, we were consumers because you needed the, the press or the BBC in order to provide us with sometimes just a one-dimensional uh, outlook. But now we're all content creators. Completely. And we are creating content, you and I, now. But, I mean, that's an enormous amount of content being generated by billions of people that is potentially the future platform of AI. How on earth do you think about diversity and inclusivity when so much content is being created? Well, I, and I, again, I think this comes back to output over outcome as well. I right? like this, It's yeah. quality uh, of, of the the content that's going into these models yep. uh, and the tuning of the models will be absolutely critical as well. You know, we want to make sure that we've got, um, if, we're, if we've got books going into the authors, we want to make sure that we've got gay authors in there as well as non-gay authors, right? We want to make sure that the, the, the core content is truly um, diverse. Okay. I think what's, what's interesting, and you, you make a great point, is that with the new um, the new models, right now they've been training primarily on text-based things, but they will be training more on podcasts and video and, and audio. We, we could end up as part who knows? Or who yeah, knows? We, might, we might be included <laughs> in some training model That'd data. That would be nice, right? Indeed. Okay. Um, what are really, what are some of your key lessons or reminders then to leaders of any size business about trying to get this right and I, I appreciate everyone is feeling their way through this but if a leader is thinking we are in a, a period of transformational change we're in a period of, of embracing digital technology and, and everyone must data is is really the new liquid gold yeah how does a leader how does he or she or what do they have in the back of their mind about getting it right from it being the right diversity and inclusivity machine so there is a book called Competing in the Age of AI. Right. Uh, it has a green and black cover. I can't remember the authors. Um, but it is a really phenomenal book. Um, and uh, there's, a, I think, chapter four. They have an email from Benioff when he, early in Amazon's history, said that from this point forwards, all data and interfaces must be serialized in this way to make them transformable and blah, 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 blah. Right. And effectively, this book talks about how organizations need to structure their data to enable them to be able to compete in the age of AI. And, um, but what it does is it has a lot of really great insights and thoughts about how you need to think about structuring your data, normalizing your data, having, you know, we've, we've all been in businesses, right, where 
the accounts department think it's the accounting system that's the master and the CRM system and marketing think and you know everybody's kind of fighting over who owns the data in the organization yeah. but actually those businesses that get this right and structure the data in a very holistic way have got their data already set up to be able to start thinking about creating their own generative models, right? We've seen that NVIDIA have got their, their AI um, labs now where you, you can start thinking about training your own models for your own company based on your own data. Microsoft announced something similar at their right. uh, build event recently. So I think that um, as leaders, we first and foremost need to understand more about where our data is and be less territorial about the ownership of it. Right. We need to encourage our people to be exploring the use of these tools. Um, now, I know that goes counter to some CEOs and, and some businesses have said you will not use these tools. You know, data is going outside the organization. I think that's naive. And the reason I think it's naive is those businesses that get this working well the cost advantage to them of outsourcing some of their work to a model that's working 24-7, yeah. yeah. um, how do you compete with that if you've got a person doing that 100% on the other side? So you've got to blend this. And, and I think for, for quite a few years now, I, I did a course, at, um, an eight-week online course with MIT, which was about AI and strategic application in organizations. And what the takeaway for me from that course primarily was about was that the future is in ha using people and AI to do the best of both worlds, right? Yeah. And we should be great at engaging as human beings and being uh, emotionally and empathetically uh, intelligent. And we should use the AI models to help us do smarter things more quickly and take away some of the, the drudge work that, that slows us down. What I'm hearing from you and, and other uh, you know, specialists in the area, this is actually a non-negotiable. And I think one of the challenges is still checking provenance because there's so much misinformation out there that how do you ensure that you're not putting misinformation into a system to get misinformation out? So that is a, one of the best things I learned at university okay. was the scientific method, right? Um, and every every person in the world should be skeptical about where the data comes from and how they're going to prove that that is a fact, whether it's right or wrong. And I think that the scientific method is the one brilliant takeaway that allows uh, everybody. And, and, you know, businesses have applied it as well. If you look at the lean startup movement yeah. and you look at building a business hypothesis, testing that hypothesis. You know, you don't have to build a product to validate your, your assumptions on that side. But I think the scientific method is something that we all in, you know, whether we call it that or, or not, but we all need to be very aware and use that in our day-to-day -day work. Are there, are there multiple methods that people can? I, I mean, the, the primary scientific method is about having a hypothesis and then throwing, you know. Testing it. Testing it. Right. And, and either, you know, as far as science is concerned, if you cannot disprove it, then it, you know, over a long period of time, it might be considered a law. And, and you know, at those points, uh, we don't generally throw everything away. But I know uh, 
looking at some stuff that the James Webb telescope's been churning out over the last few months. There's uh, a few physicists scratching their heads trying to figure out how some of their uh, laws have been thrown into disarray oh, really? as well. Wow. Mm. I mean, uh, there's a bit of a yin and a yang here, isn't there, because of the the obvious benefits and insight that one might get from AI, but also, you know, I think we're, we're being told that we're, we're five minutes away from us not being able to believe anything we read, anything we see, and anything we hear because it's been generated by AI and there's no way of actually really knowing. Mm-hmm. So again, the, I, we're, the we're in this. The I mean, the deep fakes, I've already started seeing them are it, it, astonishing. And we're already hearing from the law enforcement arena how there are some nefarious practices already um, cropping so I, up. I trained uh, a, a model with my own voice a few weeks back when I was just tinkering. Yeah. Um, and I gave it literally about 30 seconds of my voice. Yes. And it, it can reproduce my voice in a way that I found scary. quite uncannily. That's um, kind of scary. Because yeah. then we get into the realms of people getting calls from you that not aren't you. Absolutely. And wow. Uh, listen, this this is fascinating in relation to, as I say, th- these are important topics, diversity, inclusivity, and the future of technology in making sure that it still has inclusivity and diversity. And prob- oh my, there's just so much to think about, Jason. But I, uh, as you say, no leader, I think, has all the answers but also no leader can start to push this to one side because it's just too important. How can people get in contact with you, Jason? Um, people can reach me at jason.nash at curiouscognition.com. Jason.nash at curiouscognition.com. I'll put this in the show notes. Great, thanks. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been really interesting to chat with you. I think you know this is a, a really important topic, and I think the, the generative AI thing for businesses you know, if they have product roadmaps today yep. and they're not thinking about how this uh, plays a part, um, they definitely should be because I, I think it's going to be the real game changer for many businesses. And, and just on that one point, you know, traditionally we, we used APIs to communicate between software. But what you're seeing in these new models is natural language is becoming that new connecting glue, right? Because a natural language model could talk to another lang- na- na- lang- language model. Put my There's an there. irony there, right? Exactly. Yeah, there is. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, suddenly we're, we're talking in human language, not in APIs and, and technology. And I think we'll actually see more of this. We'll see because natural language has actually become the thing that we've communicated in for so long. We're going to see that starting to happen in more and more technology. Maybe that's why products. people feel there is an existential threat, because now you've got machine teaching machine and more powerful and more knowledgeable than any human on the planet and being able to download or draw down from the world's library you know well the, the discrete models are arguably better at us in various things as you link more of these models together then they become even better than us, right? Well, so, uh, let's you and I keep an great. eye on this, and maybe we'll have to come back into the studio and talk about what the next chapter in this, in this journey. Jason, thanks for being a superstar and coming into the Leadership Enigma. I hope it's been fun for you. Indeed. Thanks so much. Great to take great care. Time. Bye-bye. Join us again next week for more curiosity and insight with the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with me on LinkedIn or visit us at www.leadersenigma.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms and on our dedicated YouTube channel. Thanks again for joining the community.